podcast has bad words. <laughs> all right, I'm here with Ryan, and of course, we have Jamie Wheel, author of Recapture the Rapture. We were just on the minimal. We were talking a bit about, Jamie, we were talking about meaning and mystics and how they're living in a way that is not, um, well, that most of us don't live or we aspire to live. Yeah. And when I say aspire, like that's a, a bad word to me. I, once upon a time, I was an aspiring writer. This is before I had written five books. I aspired every single day, but barely wrote any <laughs> words, right? And so I think most of us go through life aspiring to live without living. We're creating a life for ourselves as opposed to living. Mm-hmm. And it's easier than ever to create a life, meaning Uh, there's the composition of the life, whether it is on the social media accounts or it is through consumerism and we're buying things. Even, you know, Ryan and I grew up extremely poor, government assistance, food stamps, even in those scenarios in the Western world, at least, um, we're able to, to create a sort of facade that lacks all of the, the sort of nutrition. It's, it's, it's not meaningful in any I don't see it as, as particularly meaningful, but it is, it, it projects this sort of faux meaning in a way. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, I think that's, there's all sorts of critiques as to where do we go off the rails or where have we dropped the stitch, you know, in healthy, vibrant cultures. And it's a total cliche that when Westerners go to, you know, Southeast Asia or, or Africa or South America, and they're like, gosh, you know, they were dirt poor didn't have two pennies to rub together but gosh darn it they were the happiest people I've ever seen yeah. you know and, and but so I'm not going to give up any of my stuff no but I'm definitely going to take the selfie with all the brown kids you know and post right. it on my Facebook and you're like fuck you you know like yeah. you did it again so so that and you know the, the same with um, you know cultural appropriation of um, plant medicines and all these kind of things like we can't stop colonizing mm. right the the cultures that we bled dry Mm. Um, because we, there's some deep sense. I mean, this goes back to Rousseau and the noble savage, right? Like, where did we get too, cl- you know, clever for our own good, too big for our britches? Mm. But that sense of what you what you just said earlier of the, what is it with mystics, contemplatives, folks who appear somehow to have cracked the code on our existential dilemma, mm. right? Yes. And and the the answer is really really consistent, right? They are twice born humans. Yes. And, and that has come from um, cultivating explicit death and rebirth practices. Mm. And those exist throughout indigenous traditions, through shamanism, the, the Lakota sun dance for, for Native American traditions, but also in the Western world, the Lucinian mysteries in Greece. You know, all of these things, have, and in fact, our buddy uh, Brian Murarescu, who wrote the Immortality Key, which, was, which came out just you know, like this last six months, which is all about the Lucinian mysteries and how that continued into early Christianity. And he went to the Vatican and looked into their catacombs and all kinds of fascinating stuff. But Plato, Socrates, Pythagoras, all these dudes were in it. And they said, hey, the mysteries don't just teach us how to die a better death. They teach us how to live a better life. Mm. Right? Goethe, Goethe the, the said, he said, he, he who does not know the secret die and become will remain forever a stranger on this earth. Mm. So you're like, okay, so that's, there's a whole bunch of Easter eggs here. Like, yes. now what's under the hood? And, that, and if we kind of put a sort of neuroanthropologist hat on this, you're like, okay, we've seen consistent actions across time and culture around death, rebirth, initiatory experiences. Same for action sports athletes, right? Mm-hmm. Wingsuiters. Why do wingsuiters roll the dice on living and dying? Because being that alive, mm-hmm. right, is, is, is absolute crack 
mm-hmm. right, to a seeker. Well, it, it's a state of no mind as well. We we talk about that on the podcast from time to time. It's not, it's not mind. Uh, what, what's the 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 Silicon Valley term, mindfulness, right? It's it's <laughs> it's actually the opposite of that, right? It, it it is the state of of no mind. It is is we can call it just being. In fact, any language I put around it is just a sort of narrative overlay of what mm-hmm. the what the actual experience is. I can't explain experience to you. Like it's like explaining you know the color green to a blind person, right? It just mm-hmm. it doesn't it, it it doesn't really make sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What you were saying really conjured the image of I think it was Confucius who said a man lives two lives and the second one begins when he realizes he lives but one mm. and, that's beautiful. and, and it, that's the rebirth that you're talking about yeah. here or, or Shakespeare and Julius Caesar right a, a, you know, and I, I'm paraphrasing but he says he says a coward dies a thousand deaths right mm. a hero but one yeah uh-huh. right so that so that sense you're like okay so you know back to seeking pleasure and avoiding pain right we we fetishize those moments of heroism and courage mm-hmm. where where somebody sets aside pleasure and pain mm-hmm. and steps up to do the right thing as they must you know leonidas and 300 you know like a mm-hmm. hundred thousand persians you know today is the day they will write about us in, in song and story right mm-hmm. never yes. forget the the dead poet society hop up on the desks and oh captain my captain mm-hmm. thelma and louise butch cassidy and sundance kid right all of it we're like, fuck, yes, and we love it. We love it, but we're also pussies, and we would fold <laughs> at that moment, which is why we fetishize. So um, the Greek poet Archilochus, and then it, this has been adopted by the SEAL teams, right? But the, the idea of, like, you don't rise to the occasion. You sink to the level of your training. Yes. Right? So you're like, okay, so if I've spent my entire life feathering the nest of my narcissistic personality mm-hmm. with consumer goods, yeah. right, what am I going to do in the crux? Uh-huh. I'm not going to suddenly become a samurai warrior or a knight on shining armor. I'm going to fold. I'm going to duck it. It's because you have everything to lose and you're so it's it's the attachment of of uh, it's attachment to everything that is essentially meaningless. Yeah. That in a way prevents us from pursuing that meaningful existence. Yeah, mm. and so how do we rise to the level of our training? How would we train for that moment that defines our entire existence, mm. right? And that's death practices. Mm. So in the past, all of these these initiatory experiences have been super secretive, closely guarded and wrapped in mythology, right? Mm-hmm. But you know, with neuroscience and with optimal psychology, we actually know exactly what's going on under the hood. And that's actually kind of one of the things I'm most excited about to have laid out in this book, which is we actually have the exact protocol for a death rebirth experience. Mm. <laughs> and it's open source and it's not wrapped in mythology. Mm-hmm. So you can say, here you go, this is paint by numbers, rocket ship to your own initiation. Wow. And once you've had that experience, you can be you can be atheistic. You can mm-hmm. say, I, I simply believe this is just access to lots of information mm-hmm. and insight. Awesome. Mm-hmm. You could be theistic and you could be communi- communing with the deities and angels of your pantheon. Mm-hmm. It could be aesthetic. Mm-hmm. And you're like, hey man, this is just gorgeous fractal symmetry as far as the eye can see. Mm-hmm. Right? It doesn't like that's all okay. Like there's room for it all. Yes. On team human, uh-huh. right? You can skin it. You can sort of you can skin it however you want. So like, believe what you want to believe. Mm-hmm. Just never lose the faith. Mm. And right, and the faith is somatic in body, like in my bones, in my skin. I know this to be true because I've actually lived it. Uh-huh. That I, that you know, to your point, that the 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 Confucius uh-huh. quote, yeah. right? That I now realize. I'm a dead man walking. I now realize that I'm not, I'm no longer seeking to escape this, to bypass this, to, sh- to duck my yoke, 
my, you know, the thing that's mine to shoulder. Uh-huh. And then I come back, you know, and we know all these stories, right? This is Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz. This is Jimmy Stewart and a Wonderful Life. This is Ebenezer Scrooge on Christmas morning. You, the whole, you know, and all of the Joseph Campbell's hero's journeys, mm-hmm. right? All right. have that. The hero disappears. He is written off as dead. He is in the belly of the whale, mm-hmm. yeah. right? So, so we, and the, and the moment of coming back and, oh, Nizagadita, the Indian philosopher, like the other world, is this world mm-hmm. rightly seen? Yes. So I've had this yes. experience. I now come back and I'm like, oh my God, I get to live out the rest, you know, two decades, three decades, five decades, however much time I have left, mm-hmm. I get to live it as a twice born human. Yeah. And once we've been born twice, right, then dying a second time isn't nearly so hard. Mm-hmm. We do this segment on the podcast called More About Less. We read something to, to really kickstart a conversation. Usually it's an article or something we found interesting recently. But since we have your book here, I thought we would move to page 266 of the book. I just want to read a few things here because you have essentially your 10 commandments, although you call them the 10 suggestions. <laughs> and uh, I thought I would just read a bit from this. It'd be a good jump off point to talk about at least a few of these mm-hmm. suggestions. But taking out guardrails altogether can be problematic or even fatal to a, a healthy community. The comforting uh, solidity of thou shalls and thou shall nots doesn't pair that well with the uh, certainty of direct experience and the Bayesian uncertainty of nothing is true, everything is permitted. Our current times have grown too complex for the black and white binaries of the Old Testament traditions. So we can come up with an alternative to the Ten Commandments, one that gives enough flexibility that people of varied beliefs and backgrounds find them helpful. That's exactly what you're talking about here, right? So that there isn't a prescription. In fact, you even go on to say here, like, this isn't about prescribing something so that here, this is what everyone must do, should do, because rarely does that dogma work for the, you know, the broader populace, right? Mm. So let's go into some of these 10 suggestions here. Number one is do the obvious. There are entire industries devoted to personal growth, biohacking, and self-help. Most of them distract from the broader human project. Rather than getting overwhelmed by all of the options for optimization, just do the obvious. Sleep deeply, move frequently, eat real food, get outside, bathe often, play music, breathe deeply, grieve fully, make love, give thanks. You can put all that extra time and money left over toward living a vitalized and engaged life. You sound like a minimalist. (laughs) 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 Totally. Uh, Number, uh, uh, the next one here is uh, uh, don't do stupid shit. Let's talk about that. Yeah. What does that mean in this context? Well, I mean, you know, the simplest is precisely because of the collapse in meaning and the collapse in pre-existing authority structures, right? We're sort of all just making it up as we go along. Yes. And I don't even think you have to make the case. I think it's pretty much just established fact that we have more access to more transformative, ecstatic peak states and experiences, mm-hmm. right. right? Whether that's Wim Hof and ice baths and saunas to VR and AR to psychedelics to, you know, much more adventuresome sexuality, polyamory, all the things, mm-hmm. Gwyneth Paltrow and Goop, you name it, right? Like, yeah, right. All the things. We yeah. have access to all the things. And <laughs> yes. we've never had those um, outside of established lineages and traditions. They're like, this is how it fits in our society. This is when you get to do it. This mm. is who initiates you into it. This is what it means and what mm. you're supposed to do next. It's like breaking the sticks off bottle rockets and, and hoping they still go where you point them. Yeah. So we are all totally rudderless. 
So the don't do stupid shit is, hey, when we're playing in these spaces with this super volatile rocket fuel, don't end up in a cult, don't end up in a body bag, don't end up in a jail cell, don't mm -hmm. end up in a mental institution, don't end up in rehab, yeah. right? Don't end up in court. Like if you do, then you fuck it up for everybody else, mm. right? And you provide an excuse and a rationalization for the gatekeepers to shut the whole party down. Mm. Yeah, it's almost like when, uh, you know, you talk to someone about, like I would talk to my dad about, you know, maybe this Jehovah's Witness thing isn't what it's all cracked up to be. Maybe God isn't what, what, what we think God is. And he's like, well, if that's the case, then, you know, people would just run around murdering and, and, and raping and stealing and they would have no morals. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I would argue that, <laughs> you know, you don't have to have God to tell you not to do those things. Or in other words, you don't have to have God to tell you not to do stupid shit. Yeah. And, and interestingly, actually, um, you know, Nietzsche's comment on God is dead, right? Mm -hmm. That's often used by atheists or by, you know, kind of modernists to say, ha, 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 the mm -hmm. time is over. Like that, you know, that's, that's, in, the, that's in the dark ages, you know, mm -hmm. time to get over that superstitious stuff. But the rest of the paragraph and thus spake Zarathustra where, where he writes that mm -hmm. is like, that's just this weird quote that's been taken totally out of context. Because right. the rest of the paragraph is, you know, basically if God is dead, we're really in for a world of hurt because be careful right. when you kill your gods because you actually tear out the entire social fabric of ethics, morality, connection, concern that kept us yeah. from just being brute, self-interested savages, yeah. right? So, you know, in Blaise Pascal, the French mathematician said, you know, we all have a God-shaped hole in our hearts. Right. So mm -hmm. how do you fill that hole? Well, you can't simply say God is a fictional construct. Mm -hmm. We've outgrown it. Mm -hmm. Because in that hole is a vacuum for certainty, belief, and a sense of transcendence, which is why we have such fertile ground for all conspiracy theories these days. Right. Where it's like we've all got open wounds and we're contracting staph infections mm. that are coming right in through that God-shaped hole. Mm. Yeah. And, and so the question is, is not to imagine, it's, it's like, you know, the boomers in the 60s were like, oh, 1950s, Eisenhower, America, uptight, lockdown, super repressed, all the structures, patriarchy systems, big business. So let's just not have any money, not have any organization, not have any structures. And they did the back to the land movement in the 70s. They built these little shanties in the forest and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And they just all failed mm -hmm. because it was like, oh, there's dysfunctional hierarchies and then there's functional hierarchies mm. and you can't blow up the dysfunctional ones and then leave a vacuum right. Right. and assume that that's actually going to get the job done from this from the point of view of culture architecture yeah well, spe mm. speaking of the the god-shaped hole the number three on your list here is let the mystery stay the mystery mm. <laughs> let's talk about that because oh. we are it, it's it's the number one question right it, it, it's become a platitude or it's become a meme of what is the meaning of life mm. right and and yet it's also life's most profound question in a way and yet we want because of the our need for prescription or our need for mm -hmm. solutions our need for answers mm -hmm. we want the specific answer we want the mathematical yeah. equation it's funny because we love the mystery we love the search to figure out the mystery uh -huh. but like once we figure it out then there is no more mystery it's like pinning right. down the butterfly wings right yes yeah and then, yeah. and then it's no longer the, the magic of the butterflies yeah. gone. And that's really a lot of my, and you know, people have commented um, on Patreon or through uh, community about how we don't specifically talk about our beliefs. Uh -huh. But you know, the truth is, is like I have very loose beliefs. I don't talk about them because there's a lot of mystery with it. Mm. And trying to explain what you know how I perceive things with 
with my beliefs, it, it, it ruins the mystery for me personally. I think my beliefs tend to get in the way of what we're talking about too. Like, mm, so if I have a particular sure. belief around something, what that really means is, uh, because the belief isn't necessarily the truth, right? And, right. and so, and, and I know that that T word is, is a, uh, is a loaded word, but, uh, when we're talking about mystery. What, what, what are you talking about? Let the mystery be the mystery, stay the mystery. Well, I mean, I think, you know, what Terrence McKenna said way back when is that it's ultimately unenglishable, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or in the Tao Te Ching, you know, that sort of, you know, he, he who speaks does not know and he who knows does not speak or mm-hmm. no 10 things tell nine, right? Any, any of them. But there is a sense of kind of like at some point, it's just better to let the burning bush burn, yes, right? Because it is ultimately unfathomable. And for the folks that come back and, you know, this is massively exacerbated by influencer culture and social media where anybody can grow up to be an expert mm-hmm. right <laughs> you yeah. know and like kind of like influencers t- are just really infomercials that's all that is it's oh just a, it's goodness. a pox on on civil discourse right because yeah. you have all sorts of wannabe pretenders in fact our buddy doug rushkoff said it perfectly he said on the internet there's only a handful of guitarists and then just a fuck ton of people with effects pedals <laughs> <laughs> you know so like what is actually It'll resonate with podcast show oh, right deeply great. deeply original content is mm-hmm. few and far between and yes. you have all sorts of people not even coming back from the mountaintop they, they've been on in the foothills uh-huh. but they've taken a picture with a backdrop and a green screen you yeah. know and, and they're then fronting that they know and I mean I remember I conducted a you know, at least for me, what was a fairly in-depth study in my like late twenties, and I basically looked for anybody in the twentieth century. Yeah, twenties. I, I suppose I was kind of selecting for people who had gone deep into the mystos. So specifically, like psychonauts. So like mm. John Lilly, Robert Anton Wilson, Ken Kesey, some of those guys. Mm. Also some tantric mystics, et cetera, et cetera. So I wanted people who had definitely sent it, and also still ha- had Western frameworks to try and unpack it. And I and read. Why was the Western framework important? Because is it because the Eastern framework is just so far off that you can't map your experience onto it? Pretty much. I, I wanted stuff that was um, interoperable okay. with my own worldview That's so, so that I could kind of check it, you know. Okay. And, and what I realized, and, and, and I really did select for the dudes who had undoubtedly been there and spent some time in high elevations. And then you read their stories and they're all wildly different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're like, okay, so this, this appears to be um, irreducibly mediated by biology, selfhood, psychology, and the prison house of language, at a minimum. Mm. And then- Prison house of language, whose term is that? I don't know. Okay. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's conceivable it's mine, but I doubt it. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, it's great, that's beautiful. Because you know? I think it's, it's our number one problem. Yeah. yeah. I can't seem to let go of it though. Yeah, and, and, <laughs> and so, um, and in fact, John Lilly, bless his heart, right? He was this, an NIH, you know, University of Pennsylvania, hardcore neuroscientist academic, did all the research on LSD, float tanks, dolphins, and then went way, way off the reservation. Mm. I mean, to the point where he was like injecting himself with ketamine for hours at a time. That movie Altered States with uh, Richard Dreyfuss and William Hurt from mm. way back when. I haven't seen it. Oh, it's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's, like an, it's like a cult classic 80s flick based on his life. And he, you know, he was the inventor of float tanks. So if anybody's been dabbling in that, like this is where it all came from. Okay. Uh-huh. And he disappeared into like interdimensional, like full bore matrix realities, mm-hmm. but spent so much, but he still had the scientists framework. Uh-huh. So he actually created this like list of guidelines and they were all meta construct multi-perspectival. So it's sort of like, hey, there's this earth coincidence control office. There's this Manichaean battle between light and dark and solid state machine intelligence. But here's the deal. Go and assume that all the coincidences that happen in your life are for a reason. Your, your point is to like lean through the coincidences, et cetera, et cetera. And he didn't actually 
like write his own comic book of the infinite information space. Mm -hmm. He basically says, if you're going to go in there for yourself, here's ways to keep your bearings. And that actually was the inspiration for the cheat codes to the infinite game, mm -hmm. which I wrote in here, which was like, if you're going to navigate this space, like it doesn't matter what I've seen. It doesn't matter what I think, mm -hmm. right? Go see for yourself. Mm -hmm. And rather than positioning ourselves as, as pundits, teachers, gurus, authority figures, I think the, the analogy, I mean, obviously this is my background, so I think in these terms, but the analogy is much more like mountaineering and climbing. Yeah. Where if somebody does a first ascent up a hard route, uh -huh. they come back and they share root beta, which just means beta just means second, uh -huh. right? Instead mm -hmm. of alpha. So here's what it looked like. Here were the hard parts. Here's a place to get water. Here's a place to camp. Here's a place to rest. Here's a super sketchy spot that I don't even necessarily recommend. Right. And 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 our buddy uh, Zach Stein, who's a Harvard-trained educational theorist, um, has a beautiful role. Has a beautiful description of the authority of a teacher and I think this is true for Instagram influencers and for all the self-help self-appointed gurus which is the role of teacher is not absolute it's not that you as this you as a person hold that authority it's situational and context dependent mm -hmm. right so if you yeah. happen to have found your way up a neat route up to a certain high point and you look around you're like hey this seems kind of awesome yeah. and then you come back down you offer it to others mm -hmm. and then that can do one of two things it can either take somebody who wasn't as skillful as you who can now more safely get up to that spot with your help and guidance because mm -hmm. you've been there before. And maybe right? even place pitons in the mountainside yes. on the way up. Exactly. Or it can take somebody who is as skilled as you or more skilled, and they can then get to your spot, your high point, with energy left over, ah. right? Because they helped ease the way. And then you can swap leads. So, so, right, so there's that swing low, sweet chariot, that old spiritual tune, right? Mm -hmm. So if you get to heaven before I do coming for to carry me home mm. open up the window and pull me on through mm. so that idea is like i'm not a teacher i just happen to be standing at a certain ridge line here's the info to how to get here come on up look for yourself yeah. and either i get you a hot drink or you tie into the front and you now go hit something i was scared to do or that's or that stopped me before and now you can belay me or help me get so, so we help each other uh -huh. and we can leapfrog each other by sharing information mm -hmm. but our position is not sacrosanct we're not taking the claim or fronting that we know definitively any of this we're just fellow explorers mm -hmm. right but we can help keep each other safe that's mm. beautiful yeah. uh, what, a, what a perfect metaphor there's seven other suggestions here uh commandment ish what's your favorite of the yeah, do you have do you uh, I, do you have a favorite? Maybe it's fuck your journey. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, that one comes up. So the funny thing was on that one, um, it was actually our our buddy's uh, Aubrey Marcus's yoga studio in Austin, right? Yeah, so, yeah. so we go, and, and I I'm not good at yoga. Definitely don't like hot yoga. I mean, I'm, I'm English. I like cool climates. The notion of like sweating balls, like in a, in a studio, just not my jam. And I got dragged there by friends because they were doing this super vibey, like late night, you know, DJ spinning kind of hot yoga thing. Mm. Very sceny super fun <laughs> and this and this really sweet yoga instructor is like walking up and down the you know the aisles and she's giving us these you know these poses and we're stuck in this pose and it's like sweat's dripping down my face she's like and when my journey began three years ago and just <laughs> neon sign in my brain was like fuck your journey and i could see it like bumper stickers and, and t-shirts and i was like oh yeah that's that's exactly it so like back to the do the obvious right mm. do the obvious just get that done save your time and money to being a better human the let the mystery stay the mystery is how much time do folks spend bungee jumping into the back of beyond and then coming back and elaborating these totally half-baked 
yeah. worldviews and cosmologies. Yeah. And the fuck your journey is like, these days, everybody is just a carpetbagger of catharsis. You mm. sit down, you hang out, and they're like, oh, let me tell you about my latest breakthrough. Let me tell you about my childhood womb. Have, I, have you heard of my attachment style? Mm. You know, and you're just like, shut the fuck up. Mm. Like, none of this matters. Because if you just pan back to the human condition, you're like, we are all super banged up. And that's actually one of the most humanizing things. Like if you ever are, you know, in a large gathering that does some form of workshop and kind of sharing of intimate information, I'm always totally blown away by how much tragedy is in all of our lives. Yeah. How yeah. much grief. Right. And, 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 and it transcends socioeconomic class yes. and ethnicity and every it, it, yes. it doesn't matter. The only commonality is the human experience. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, suffering, right? I mean, yeah. suffering it permeates all of our lives. Yeah, and, and nothing actually leaves me feeling more like anchored and strangely like proud and confident in humanity than when we share our darkest nights and our trials, right? There's, mm -hmm. there's even, there was a beautiful art installation at Burning Man one year called The Wall of Shame, and it was like this Mobius strip set of stairs that kind of like, you know, went up and then came back around to itself, and it just had a wall, you know, built around it with like Sharpie markers on strings, and people just spontaneously wrote the things that they were most deeply ashamed of, mm. and you would think that would be a really dark, twisted kind of exhibit, but it wasn't, yeah. because it was like, it was profoundly human, and then they set that fucker on fire at the end of the week, like, boom, uh -huh. like, let it go, mm. and so... This notion of like, if we, A, we all carry those burdens, right? Uh -huh. And we, and num somehow we're all still standing. And that is a profound testament to human resilience and spirit. And then if we get to kind of step outside of time, if we get to experience a, a the misto, right? Yeah. You realize, oh, the only adequate response to that, right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound right was blind but now i see like that moment all we can do is drop to our knees and weep with gratitude mm. right thank you to the bullies in second grade that chased me around the playground thank you to my alcoholic father right who led me to a road of discipline and temperance thank you to that first girlfriend that broke my heart because she prepared me for mm. true love right mm. thank you for that entrepreneurial flame out right because yeah. that was the wrong thank you to all of it so so when we find ourselves in the deep now Right? There's no second guessing. Every bump and scrape that got us here, it had it was it's redeemed, right? Mm -hmm. In the unfolding. Yeah. Right? So then you're just like, whew, I can let it all go. I can actually and, and I can literally, honestly, not like, oh, I'm gonna kinda grip my teeth and forgive you because I've understood that that's poison I keep in my heart and my you know, my, my therapist told me I really ought to. You know, it's not that. It's like this mm -hmm. joyful embrace of the full catastrophe, yes. right? And once that's happened, you're like, okay, so this is all just noise. We all have our version of that very story. So the fuck your journey is to say, hey, either we are in this quintessential moment together mm. or we're not. Yes. And, and rehashing and talking about all of our past trauma and pain doesn't get us into it. Mm. And if we're in it, there's nothing that needs to be said about it. Mm. Mm. So, so let's do that instead, right? If we're all here now, like, amen. Yeah. yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. You know, we got a, a bunch more to talk about here. We got some questions. Before we get into these questions, I thought maybe we would talk about hedonic engineering. <laughs> You've got this uh, little chart in your, in your book. And uh, actually, I'll just let you talk about it. Talk to me about 
hedonic engineering and, and how is that different from when we think about hedonism mm-hmm. I, I think of it as almost a I don't want to say a bad thing. I don't want to moralize hedonism, moralize anything here. But but what you're talking about from hedonic engineering is appreciably different from the hedonic treadmill. Mm. Yeah, I mean um, that's actually Robert Anton Wilson's term, and I think it just stuck in my brain from like you know 10, 15 years ago when I first read it. Uh-huh. But it's the idea of how can we use peak states, pleasurable peak states, positive experiences, um, in order to both mend our trauma and ultimately reformat our consciousness Mm. right and is that possible and if so can we do it skillfully because the simple answer is we haven't done a super good job of it up to now right Right. and so you know access to peak states uh, or ecstatic states has typically been you know layered with taboo because they're very powerful Mm -hmm. and they're also often um, anti-authority. <laughs> so like, right. right, this is like uh, Fantasia, like Mickey and the Sorcerer's Apprentice, right? <laughs> like the moment somebody gets gets a little access, they like want to put on the magic hat and, and like get it and do all their dirty dishes or they run off and elope, you know, like whether it's sexuality, whether it's intoxication, whether it's dance and music, like Footloose, you know, like, <laughs> right, right. The idea of like, watch out, that's the devil's work, right? And the, and the reason is, is because we are hardwired you know, we're basically lizard brain fuck monkeys at our core, right? Mm-hmm. And if we're cut loose with those things without guardrails, they can often become quite destructive. Uh-huh. And and so any civilization, whether this is like Moses, you know, he, he, he boogies on up uh, Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. The, the Hebrew tribe is potting their faces off for 40 days and 40 nights down below, yeah. right? They're worshiping the golden calf. They're getting hammered. They're having sex. They're doing all the things. Moses comes down. He's absolutely gobsmacked. He throws the Ten Commandments down. He's like, you are bad, naughty, naughty, naughty people. Mm-hmm. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. This is the jam. Yeah. You know, the Mormons in the 19th century said, hey, man, drinking, drinking and carousing, fornicating, all these things off the table, kids. Mm. We got some ditches to dig. Mm-hmm. Right, and they irrigate Utah and Idaho. They create a garden civilization out yeah. of a desert. If people and, and it's you know you can make a case that is plays a part in Mormons' asymmetric uh, accumulation of wealth, entrepreneur, <laughs> entrepreneurship, and students. They're not out chasing tail right. and nursing yeah. hangovers. It's, it's also the most equal state in the entire country when you look at the economics. It's the only state that had positive GDP during the pandemic, yeah. and so like there are these fascinating, yeah, there, there's. It's almost what I hate, and I think what you're getting at here with the book is like it doesn't require a particular kind of repression or oppression mm-hmm. in order to achieve those things, but it does require what discipline. I don't even know what the word is. Yeah, well, I mean, and that's that's the thing, right? So, so all of these dec- those techniques, and whether that's breath work and chanting, dance, movement, music, uh, substances, sexuality, embodiment, those things have been typically tightly controlled and tops down, locked down. So the idea of like you can have sex for procreation, but not for recreation. You can have music for reinforcing order, like church hymns and army marches and parades, but not for Elvis and the Beatles and the Grateful Dead, mm. right? Mm. Or Tiesto, right? Mm. Like those things, those, that's sketchy and out of our control, mm. right? And you can have placebo sacraments, what Michael Pollan has referred to them. You can, you can have you know, things that kind of put us through the motions, but not anything that actually connects you, like bypasses the middlemen, mm. like the priests and the gatekeepers, and actually has you coming back with, oh, you've been, you, be, you got it wrong. 
mm-hmm. Father, you know, and I'm here mm-hmm. to tell you something else. So, so all that is just a preamble to say that if we realize, hey, we're in a world of hurt, we are experiencing crisis and meaning, any top-down solutions are going to be problematic to fascistic if you really play them all through. And, and the 20th century saw that, right? Socialism and communism are awesome ideas in theory. Sure. They end up massively problematic in practice and execution, right? right? So any top-down solutions, we've seen that move. We don't want to do that again. How can we create access for people to have healing, inspiration, and connection? Mm-hmm. And if we do that, and you're like, okay, so that everybody can have access to it, you know, you, you, if you take a design thinking approach, like, like they designed from IDEO who like made the Apple mouse and they did all kinds of fancy stuff. They came out of Stanford ages ago. They created a human-centered design toolkit because they're like, hey, we innovate shit. We, we design cool consumer products, all this stuff. But the way we innovate is actually really helpful and useful for people around the world. So they created this open source toolkit where they're like, you know, if you're trying to create a better water system in Delhi or microfinance in Ghana or any, any like human things. Mm-hmm here's how you might go about it. And here's, here's ways to help you design cultural adaptations that are pro-social, helpful, stable, and yours, because you built them, not some fancy pants consultancy, mm-hmm. right, dropping an answer on your doorstep, you know, that doesn't work for you. Mm-hmm. Right. So if we're gonna say, okay, what does hedonic engineering look like, right? Based on design thinking, you're like, let's think about breathing, respiration, like let's think as close to evolutionary drivers as possible, mm-hmm. because if, if you, like, if, they were what kept us alive over hundreds of thousands of years and put eight billion of us here on the planet. They are effective. So the closer to evolution you can get, the longer lever you have to healthfully influence, right? It, it change. sounds to me like what you're talking yeah, about I is is pre pre civilization. A friend of ours, uh, Dr. Christopher Ryan, wrote a book called Civilized to Death. Yeah, yeah. and. He, you know, really, it seems that most of our problems, and especially when I look at the mystics and everyone else, mm-hmm. the commonality I see is that most of our problems, modern problems, I use that term loosely, have arisen within the last 12,000 years, you know, post sort of, uh, now, we're not going to put the toothpaste back in the tube, I understand that, but understanding that many of these problems may not even be innate to human experience, it has to do with society imposing many of these top-down solutions mm-hmm. which create more problems mm-hmm. let's talk mm-hmm. a little bit about about civilization's role in in all of this because it seems oh. to me that these pre-civilized people mm-hmm. um they didn't they didn't have these same these same issues that we do my goodness okay so yeah i mean and and we can for sure circle back and unpack hedonic engineering in any any more detail that's helpful because i want to make sure that folks feel empowered, right, to, to consider how do I take responsibility for answering my yearning philosophical questions? Is there, is there more, mm-hmm. you know? How do I defrag my nervous system and process trauma? And how do I stay connected in meaningful, high trust, uh, high vitality ways to my partners, to my family, to my community and beyond? Mm. But this question of like, where do we go off the rails? This literally was like my entire research for my undergrad and grad studies. Oh, wow. Like completely, like so, like guns, germs, and steel, and Yuval Harari sapiens, like yes. like that neck of the woods. Uh-huh. And I studied with like the leading Native American scholar in the country, a Yale lawyer named Vine Deloria, and I was like, okay, where did Western civilization go off the rails? Mm. And um, 
I mean, it's a fascinating question, and both Chris, Ryan, and, um, and Yuval, right, if you, if you get folks are familiar with Sapiens, that book, they all peg it at the rise of the agrarian society, mm-hmm. yes. right, and mm-hmm. that hunter-gatherers were happier, healthier, had more free time, all of those kinds of things. And there's profound truths in that. Um, and that's also the, but, but that, that sense of we got, we, you know, kicked out of the garden, we're east of Eden, we were doomed to suffer, we built all these clever widgets and gadgets, but we're really unhappy and we're missing the meaning thing. Can we wind back the clock and can we get back on that happy train? Mm-hmm. And, I mean, to your point, toothpaste and tubes, probably not, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's a total dilemma, as to assessing this. And there's even that book like Ishmael. I don't know if you guys ever read that. It was, a, it was, a, it was like, I think Daniel Quinn was the author of it. It was, came out in the 90s. It was kind of like in that sort of Celestine prophecy era, okay. you know, of like mm. kind of like popular new agey books. But it was like being told by the narrator was this super wise gorilla. And he's like, there were the leavers and there were the takers. Oh, I've heard of this. Yeah. Right. And, and, and so the leavers were the indigenous hunter-gatherer societies. The takers were kind of the origins of our Western industrial world. Mm. And, and, it, and those stories, those narratives are just, they're just a reboot of the fall. Mm. They're, they're legends of the fall. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that was again Rousseau, right? Holy smokes, we're super smart and we're self-aware, um, but what, and that's with this fascination with European colonialism, right? right? They were like, who are these natives untouched by civilization, the yeah. burden of consciousness, and, and, and ultimately atrocious behavior to them or totally romanticized behavior, mm-hmm. right? Right. The Polynesians, things like that, right? Like, let's paint them like again and you know, let that kind of thing. And I um, want to be careful not to romanticize it, but, but maybe it's that we can tweeze out some of those profound truths. That seems yeah. to me what the mystics have done to yeah. a great extent. They found the, the pre-civilized, and I would even argue pre-linguistic truths, mm-hmm. and, and maybe move them into contemporary society, if, mm-hmm. for lack of a better term. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the the person that I think is has their finger on the pulse of this question best lately is a fellow named Tyson Yunker Porter. He is an Aboriginal Australian, but also a Western trained scholar and academic. And he just came out with a book in the last year or two called Sand Talk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. Wow. Mm-hmm. And it's the it's the most beautiful quirky bridging of exactly because he talks about you know, sand talk is literally drawing this drawing the stories in yeah. the sand and like this is how we see the world uh. and these are and these are not just you know some like museum piece these are these are ways of looking at things and it's everything from gender to violence to ecology to who we are to hardship um, and here are ways through that might have got lost or forgotten in fast-paced western world but are potentially deeply and always true so this is an ongoing question. It's very easy to romanticize and other the quote unquote noble savage and to project onto the past like, oh my gosh, if I didn't have to commute, if my phone wasn't blowing up, if I just had all this time to hunt and gather and it would be so groovy and we could do cave paintings and we could do dance. And you're like, yes, and, right? Um, violent, mm-hmm. lots of death, lots of ostracism of the other. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Wade Davis, who's, a, who's a, a friend and a mentor, but a National Geographic's explorer in residence, he's gave an amazing TED talk about the Yanomamo tribe mm. down in the Amazon. And he's like, you know, there were only like three men in the village that he had been studying that did not die of getting speared, and then they grew too old, so they speared him anyway. Oh. You know, <laughs> the, a, a, another anthropologist uh, that we know had just, we, we were giving a talk in Vancouver, and he had just come out of like, something like 15 years in the Amazon. Like he had literally just resurfaced and was describing, oh, there's the stories of infanticide, 
among this particular tribe, where basically any more than like the third child, they would just smother when they were born. Mm. And missionaries thought that that was signs that they were, you know, devil worshiping heathens, et cetera, et cetera. But some of the mothers explained it. They're like, look, if our village is under attack, I can take my two kids on my hips and we can flee to safety. If I have a third kid, we're all too slow and we all die. Mm. Yeah. And you're like, ooh, that's some tough trade-offs. Think about elders where I can no longer move with a hunter-gathering society and I just simply get left to die of exposure. But I choose to do that. Uh-huh. And you're like, oof, that is a different moral code. And on the other hand, we spend millions of dollars in the last few weeks of people's existences hooked up to yeah. s- tubes and pipes and pumped with drugs and looked after by hourly workers and we call that civiliza- civilized. Right. Yeah. So the point is, you know, the classic thing of like, oh, if I only had, you know, if I only had a million bucks or 10 million bucks, my life would be fine. But it's like more money, more problems. You don't, you know, it's, it's the, you know, Edgar Allan Poe stories. It's all the Greek cautionary tales, like be careful what you wish for, because mm-hmm. if you got it, it's going to come with collateral complexity you weren't bargaining on. You were just picturing you like you plus extra, but the changes change everything. Yes. So if we were to say, hey, what is up with the innate wisdom? the connection to place, the connection to community, the connection to seasonal cycles, the connection to ritualized healing and grief and epiphany. Could we say we could do with those things? Absolutely. Mm. Can you, would we find a pre-modern worldview and the role of an individual, even the whole, um, I'm just gonna, I'm spiritual but not religious, or I'm just gonna travel for a while after college and figure out what I really want, or, or, or you know, like any of those things, like, um, they wouldn't, or, or I, I, you know, I could grow up to be president. None of those even inquiries were possible in pre-modern societies. Right. You were who you were. You were who your grandfather, your grandmother, and, and, and for time immemorial before, you know, like that Lord of the Rings moment where like Frodo and uh, Sam get to the edge of the Shire on the, on the journey and they pause mm-hmm. and they're like, oh, we've never crossed this bridge before. You know, like 99% of all humans ever have never moved more than 50 miles from where the place they were born. Mm. So things we take for granted of like, I get to write on the wall of reality, my best life, mm-hmm. not, even exi- not even possible. So it is this fascinating conundrum of separating out what we've lost and forgotten without putting on a pedestal and unfairly and unduly romanticizing yeah. a past that we just barely understand for starters mm-hmm. and kind of cherry pick through rose filters. Yeah. So so that would be my sense. My sense would be, you know, back to the do the obvious kind of stuff, right? Like like what are core essential building blocks of healthy culture? Yeah. Regardless of time and place. Can we then use that as a checklist and go, oops, you know, we're strong on one, three, and seven, but we're totally missing number two and number five. Yeah. Let's make sure we rebuild those and let's absolutely learn from the past, but let's also be willing to accept that adaptation and innovation are going to be essential yes. because because yeah. the landscape is changing. Yeah, right. Seems like a much more, I don't know, reasonable approach in the sense of, yeah, learning from history and molding that with what we have today. Because, yeah, we can't put the toothpaste back in the tube, but we can learn from our past and, yeah, maybe somehow use that to, I don't know, change things culturally uh, today. Um because yeah, because it does seem like such chaos. So, because there is so much chaos, that's why we ro- that's why we romanticize the hunters and gatherers. Oh, they had it so much more simpler. But yeah, yeah, there there is a there is a meeting in the middle between the chaos we experience today 
and the peace that the hunters and gatherers had in a way. I think we, we simplify every, everything to what's too simplistic, right? Mm-hmm. We're talking about complex issues that are all in, in, intertw- intertwined, and then all of a sudden we want the the magic pill, the, well, here's the answer, right? And mm-hmm. of course, it's the answer has to be the hunter-gatherer. And it's like, well, no, there, but maybe there are some profound truths in there. So, so there's a deep understanding that we can look at from that mm-hmm. and not have to go back to it and also accept all of the violence and everything else. But are some of these, are we able to move some of these into our, into our present? Yeah. Now we have some questions here. I thought we would start with James's question yeah, because this will get back to our point <laughs> on uh, nihilism. Maybe we can wrap up the nihilism discussion <laughs> once and for all. I love this question. Uh, what's the point? Does any of this even matter? Um, from my thoughts. Pers- <laughs> thoughts. Well, you know, from, from my perspective, is you know, the short answer is no, none of it matters. Mm-hmm. However, that has actually empowered me to like make the most out of it. Mm-hmm. If that makes any sense. Yeah, but, I mean, I, I guess my my perspective on that, or maybe a slight twist on it, is I don't think there is inherent meaning to life, but it, life can be meaningful if we figure out what is meaningful to us. Yeah. Not us isn't me. It's us, right? Yeah. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think actually the existentialists, like the French existentialists, you know, uh, the Camus and Saad and coming out of, you know, the Holocaust and the atom bomb in the 50s, they're like, fuck me. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like there's an awful lot of like pleasant um, platitudes that are just in smoldering ruins. Yes. And and they really, you know, and, and they tend to get stereotyped as being kind of, you know, negative Nancy's, you know, and, and life's a bitch and then you die, that's it. But if, you know, they actually finish it with saying, hey, there isn't actually, you know, and this gave rise to postmodernism, post-structuralism, all those kind of things of just tearing apart the edifices of polite society and, and, and thought. But they were like, actually, precisely because there is no truly durable explanation, it is on us to make meaning, your point. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, and yet, the burden of the human experience, the human condition is often so great that if we don't have access to peak states to remind us of what we've forgotten, right? So if, if we spend all of our time in the mundane, like the, the human dilemma, mm-hmm. then the mundane crushes us, right? And that's diseases of despair, that's, that's anxiety, depression, addiction, suicide, that's all the things we're experiencing in the meaning crisis right now. So if we're just in the mundane, few of us are strong enough, like Atlas shrugged and so do we. Right. When we try to hold up the world. But if we if we try and abandon that and we just go and seek the sacred. Right. Or Mm. the mystery, then then we spend too much time there and the the sacred will burn us. Mm. How so? Well, when you see both sides of everything. (laughs) Right. Mm. You can come unstuck in the relevance of getting up on Monday morning. You can you can become either lost, you know, and and all the all the legends have it. Like, you know, the people who get snookered and following the fairy lights into the forest and then they get lost you know, in the wilderness, right? Or the, the rapture of the deep and the mermaids entrancing you downwards, right? Any of those things, right? Um, or even just like Dr. Faustus and the quest for power or knowledge. None of these things end well, right? And, and that sense of... Um, but that, isn't that why, why we feel that sense of nihilism though? Because it's like, I either can't, I can't follow the, the fairies into the forest or whatever the, mm-hmm. the analogy is, but also I... I can't accept what is going on right here, right now. Yes. And so then it just th- throw the hands up and you get this question. Does it, what's the point? Yes. And so, and, and this goes, 
you know, again, super back to the, the minimalist credo, right? Um, for me, at least, and I mean, I'll, I'll share this and hopefully it's useful for others, right? Um, a, you know, there's, there's a Chinese expression like this, like the journey of like knowledge. Like if you're really seeking what it, re- what it all means, like it's a, best, it's a journey best never begun, mm. but if begun, must be completed. Because mm. there's no pirouettes on the tightrope across the screaming abyss, mm. right? It's, it's all the way down, right? Mm. So um, hanging out, like if you don't have to, if you can keep the blue pill, take the motherfucking blue pill, mm. friends and neighbors, right? Yeah. Steak tastes good, mm. <laughs> you know? Mm. Bacon tastes good, right? So, <laughs> so only if you have no other choice in your life to consider ripping off the veil of reality and actually contemplating, then, then you, you simply must, right? And for me, mm. even though I've had all sorts of profound, beautiful, inspiring, uplifting experiences in my life that, I'm, you know, that have shaped my existence and I'm profoundly grateful for, you know, there are days where that screaming abyss is loud in your ears, yeah. right? And you can just, even if it's just, oh man, I'm trying to make a dent in the universe. The universe doesn't seem to want to change. Ah, mm-hmm. oh, shit. The, the level of unraveling, it seems to be happening faster than we can clear stuff, shit up, mm-hmm. you yeah. know? Or people just kind of suck sometimes, yeah. man, mm-hmm. right? Any of those things, right? Um, for me, it's a three-step, like how do I pick myself back up off the floor mm-hmm. of nothing matters? So the first one is whenever I'm feeling that, I always check, what new experiences or adventure have I had in my life? So step one is seek novelty, yeah. right? We are hardwired. We're like literally reinforced for dopamine. It's not, it, it's not simply pleasure. It's actually, it's for novelty and for salience. So yeah. salience is this can make or break me. And novelty is this is something new to discover. Yeah. And that could be, I haven't seen a sunset or a sunrise in a while or a shooting star. That could be, I want to travel and see new terrain. It could be a new experience. It could be learning to dance with your partner. It could be listening to new music. Novelty mm. is literally the stuff of life. And whenever I'm festering, <laughs> right, my novelty tank is almost always on empty. And however, that novelty threshold is going to be different for each yeah. of us right some people yeah. are adventure junkies mm-hmm. and thus it's also not enough and hence no, there's sure. going to be two other so so, so points the next here. one is is make art right and and not literally like paintings it, i mean it could be right it's yeah. it's anything i always think of like those young american gis in world war ii and they did some of like the first kind of modern graffiti where they would do that little dude peering over a fence with his nose and his hands and it was, it was kilroy yeah and he was like this every and he, and they always said kilroy was here yes and they scrawled out on walls in italy and france because they were like i don't know if i'm gonna be dead tomorrow yeah. but motherfucker i was here today yeah like yeah. mock me right yeah. and so making art is just it's a testament to the human ex- to the human spirit which says the second law of thermodynamics undoes everything in the end, right? Like mm-hmm. Shelley's King Ozymandias, look on my works, ye mighty in despair, right? Or, or Planet of the Apes with the Statue of Liberty stuck in the sand, you know, like, mm-hmm. like everything erodes over time. Yes. So make a dent, make a dent, like make, make something that is more good, just a little, it doesn't have to be massive, just a little more good, mm-hmm. a little more true, a little more beautiful. It could be a garden. It could be a poem. It Create. could be a rock song. It could, yes, it, 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 could be, it could be a gathering. Like, make good, true, and beautiful art. Mm. And, and then, if you figured out those two, how do I honor the human impulse to seek what is new, to discover, to explore? That's step one. To make art, right? I'm actually railing against the dying of the light. If I figured out those two, then help out. Mm. 
turn around and share the love, share the insight, share the gift with anybody else Mm. that's still struggling with those first two. Contribute beyond yourself in a meaningful yep. way. Yeah. And and honestly, like, you know, in the sort of like stop, drop, and roll, like you're on fire, like those old PSAs they used to say, like, if you're on fire in the house, stop, drop, and roll. Like for me, those three are my existential stop, drop, and roll. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So so those three are, again, it's uh, contribute. Seek novelty. Seek novelty and create. Make art help out. Yeah. Mm. Awesome. Ryan. We have a question apparently from a baked potato. <laughs> <laughs> this is what it's come to, podcast, Sean. Mm, we have I'm such a I'm such a carby sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> what does baked potato have to say to us? How do we find meaning in relationships and how do we rediscover meaning in a formerly meaningful relationship that's lost its meaning? So this is fascinating. I was really intrigued by that second part of the question here because mm-hmm. uh, Occasionally, we find meaning in something for a period of time. It can be a day or a decade, right? Mm. Or longer. But at some point, it may end. And we graduate from that thing or we get divorced from that thing, depending on how the, the separation from it works. Mm. And, and that is also true with our relationships. You know, mm-hmm. Our best friend when we were in first grade is probably not our best friend now. I mean, my best friend from fifth grade is still my best friend now. So that's a bad (laughs) analogy for me. But for most of us, like, yeah, Yeah. most of my friends from the fourth grade or elementary school, they're not, I don't even know them anymore. Mm. But it it doesn't mean that it wasn't meaningful for that period of time. The same can also be true in our 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, -hmm. right? And so the question goes back to how do we we rediscover meaning Mm. in something that was, or someone, or some relationship that was formerly meaningful can i put a spin on this question uh before you answer to me this question it sounds something like uh how do i how do i find meaning or how yeah how do like someone has stopped taking that blue pill they've taken the red pill Mm -hmm. but then they're like they want to go back to the blue pill and how can they find meaning (laughs) in that blue pill again is it is it possible Mm. well i i would so so yes great inquiry and i'd reframe it i would say let's so, so let's actually, we'll, we'll winnow this down and let's go ahead and focus on romantic pair bonding partnerships. Yeah, okay. and, and I'll describe it as cis-heteronormative simply because that's a majority of folks. But if you have any different relationship configuration or identification, please just adapt and modify. So this is actually, I mean, that's, that's the, you know, rethinking God, sex and death, right? We've been talking about God and death, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. But the sexuality piece is another potential unlock. It's just because you know, outside of breathing and eating, procreating is one of our strongest drivers, right? So the only challenge with that is that evolution is amoral mm-hmm. and doesn't care about our relationships, our agreements, or anything else. All it wants to do is mix and match for the most robust and very gene pool possible. Yeah. And that creates all sorts of grief. Mm-hmm. And that's everything from sexual violence and trauma to infidelities to all of these things that don't match our cultural norms and our relational commitments, hopes, and expectations. So we are just you know, puppets on the string of an amoral evolution that is just jerking us around and mm-hmm. creating an incredible amount of human suffering. Yeah. So what happened, but nonetheless, remember, strongest evolutionary drivers for hundreds of thousands of years, hominids have been figuring out how to do the deed and create all of us here with no instruction manual, Yeah. right? 
I mean, up until Kama Sutras and, you know, and, and lately, like no instruction manual. Think about like Brooke Shields and the Blue Lagoon, you right, know, like yeah. you know, back to Rousseau, back to noble savages, like, hey, what are your little bits? What are my bits? I feel all funny inside. I don't know what's going on. Let's mm-hmm. do the thing, mm-hmm. right? And so can we untie our strings? Mm-hmm. Can we cease being puppets, right? Getting yanked around and can we actually use the neurophysiology and the, and the chemistry and the profound state shifting capacities of our urge to procreate and use it instead to integrate and for most of us sexuality is a very emotionally psychologically laden and loaded topic Mm -hmm. right and typically um, sex is either celebration it's an exclamation point on the end of a great day honey i just got the promotion or look at the bonus or or here we are on vacation or something like that or it's used as a tool of negotiation for power games Mm. right and let's just say anything we want to do emotionally romantically you get to keep doing that but what i would advocate is exploring sexual fitness Mm. an ongoing practice with your partner literally like yoga like lifting weights like flossing your teeth where you don't wait to say who how do you know how do my teeth look today they look amazing pearly whites i think i'm going to floss them Mm. or how do i feel today i feel like a million bucks i think i'm going to go to the gym right we all know i should do these things hell or high water because the accumulated benefit over time is awesome and i'm going to stick with them so how can we come to a place where we actually commit to hot wiring all of the neurochemistry of pair bonding, of attraction, and even transcendence with each other. So rather than going back to the blue pill, I would say invite your partner into the red pill because what actually happens, Mm. right, is um, when you practice that, you have daily practices, weekly practices, and and these are the hell or high waters. And there's a guy, uh, an Australian Tantra teacher named Barry Long, he's now dead, but he, he said something that always stuck with me. He said, until you would rather eat a shit sandwich then fuck your partner, you haven't even started Tantra. Mm. You're like, what? <laughs> that <laughs> yeah, doesn't sound sexy at all. Sounds crazy. Yeah. Right? So you're like, oh my God, what happens if we bow onto the mat, right? To practice together, even and especially when we hate each other's fucking guts. Wow. And we, and we realize, oh, all that stuff we had to talk about with our therapist, afterwards, hmm, don't need to talk about it so much anymore. We've just kind of flushed it out. Mm. So what can happen as you engage these experiences is it works like, those electromagnets, you know, like they're wrapped in copper and you spin them, mm-hmm. right? And when you spin them, they create a charge and then they're really strongly polarized. Mm-hmm. When you stop, you know, like think of our practice as the RPM on our electromagnets. Mm-hmm. So for most couples, right, there's the, there's dopamine, testosterone, estrogen. There's all the things that get us together in the lust phase. And this is based on Helen Fisher's work from the Kinsey Institute. And she's like the chief scientist at Match.com. So she's done all kinds of oh, wow. rad research, right? Mm. So she's basically like, there's three stages. There's lust, there's attraction, and then there's kind of pair bonding, mm. right? And, so, and, and, and there's this kind of progression of the hormones and the things that are pushing us to do the different stuff. So lust is I just want to jump your bones. Mm-hmm. This could be a one-night stand. This could be a hot and heavy. It doesn't matter. This is literally the irresistible thing. But it's, mm-hmm. it's, got a, it's like burning like paper in your, in your wood stove, mm-hmm. right? It's a hot, quick flash, doesn't generate a lot of heat, doesn't last long. Then there's attraction, right? And you start getting into oxytocin, you start getting into dopamine, you start getting into you know, post-orgasmic states, you get all these things like, I love you so much, I'm, I'm head over heels, all that stuff. That doesn't last that long either, mm-hmm. right? And, and it burns longer, mm-hmm. that's, like, that's like kindling. So typically one to three years, maybe four years at the outside. Mm-hmm. And it's basically just long enough to conceive, gestate, and wean an infant. Yes. 
and then off like a light switch. Right. Mm. You're like, who are you? This is hard. I don't like you anymore. We're just living together, right? And then there's potentially long-term pair bonding, and even that fizzles around seven years, like that Marilyn Monroe seven-year itch movie mm -hmm. is yeah. kind of legit, right? Mm -hmm. And so you're like, oh, man. And, and then we're wired. You know, men get into their 40s, and they have lagging testosterone, and, there's the, and the number one thing to boost testosterone in a lagging middle-aged male is sex with a new and younger available partner. Yeah. Mm. And the French call that l'affaire de la quarantaine, like the, the affair of the 40s. Mm. The classic midlife crisis, I'm going to get a Miata or a convertible, and I'm going to get an earring and a tribal tattoo, and I'm going to run off with the secretary. Oop, dumb move. Right, I just needed a tea patch. So you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. So there's all that, and you're like, oh, actually, we can create together. Not only we, we can raise the baseline of our psychology, and in fact, uh, Dr. Nicole Prousey, who was also at the Kinsey Institute, she's based here, she was at UCLA, I think, mm -hmm. for a while, um, has actually been researching orgasm as prescription pharmaceutical to replace SSRIs, to replace Prozac and other things like that, because mm -hmm. the cascade in post-orgasm is high oxytocin, dopamine, uh, prolactin, vasopressin, all these, all these things that leave us feeling safe, satiated, happy, mm -hmm. connected. And all the research, uh, like at MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, all the MDMA, PTSD work. I was talking with Rick Doblin, the founder, and he's basically like, yeah, our research shows that the closest analog to the state that people get in with MDMA that is producing all these profound breakthrough experiences for healing mm. with veterans, childhood abuse survivors, all these kind of you know, deeply in need populations is, wouldn't you know it, oxytocin, prolactin, vasopressin, Right, and some mm -hmm. serotonin. Mm -hmm. And the closest thing is the post-orgasmic state. You're like, oh, sweet Jesus. Wow. Okay, like, so we can all sign up to wait to get on one of the list of those studies. We can wait for the DE, you know, the FDA to finally approve phase three clinical trials and get this all out to the world. St how does that get into the insurance system? Who can pay? It's gonna be super expensive if you have to pay cash on the barrel head. Not everyone's gonna have access to it. So you're like, we could go down that road, or hmm, how else do we get people to the state of post-orgasm? Mm. If only we could figure this out, right? Mm. So, <laughs> and there have been studies comparing the psilocybin work at Johns Hopkins. Uh -huh. So they developed this thing called the Mystical Experience Questionnaire, the MEQ30. So it was 30 questions on how much of the mystery are you glimpsing while on psilocybin, which has kind of become the kind of gold standard baseline for repeat or reliable access to the misto. Mm -hmm. yeah. And there's been this comparable study talking about sexuality and even just basic stimulation for a woman by a partner. Mm. And it actually outperformed by 6%, the highest dose psilocybin at Johns Hopkins. Wow. So you're like, okay, so now we have access to the mystery together. And this gets back to the blue pill, red pill thing. Mm. So we, you know, basically, we, if we do nothing, we're all gonna ride that, that arc of the one, you know, love and courtship yeah. to seven year itch and mm -hmm. doom and gloom mm. and bed death, mm. yes, right? And, and that's, that's, that's what it waits for all of us. Uh -huh. Or you can say, hey, I know, like, and trust you. We're building a life together. We may even have children together. We, we've got skin in this game. Yes. Mm -hmm. Like it really does matter that we hopefully don't just become bitter and hardened and numbed to life, as, just to the pressures of life as they just come out. We have to have ways to put more money in the bank, in the relational bank account. Here's a way to do it, right? We're just tribal primates and you have a special friend with benefits and you can conduct sexual fitness training, mm -hmm. right? Not only does that raise the overall level, so the equivalent of, you know, on Prozac, mm -hmm. right? But it also can provide access to 
mystical peak states together. Mm. And this is the realm of Tantra in the East. This is the realm of sex magic in the West. It's been around, but again, it's just been esoteric, mystified, scandalized, yeah. all the things. Mm. But you're like, no, no, here's the neurophysiology, folks. We're all consenting adults mm -hmm. and learn to help each other. Yeah. And not only that, there's, there's a state um, that, you know, the technical term is erotocomatose lucidity. Mm. <laughs> which is basically just a fancy ass way for say for fucking your brains out mm. <laughs> <laughs> right? comatose means I, I, I literally go from like agitated beta into alpha slash theta but lucid I'm still here awake and aware and alert mm. and if you combine that with nice vibey set and setting good music all these things you're like oh wow yeah. we can actually experience profound peak states together yeah and holy smokes we're, it goes it goes from sexuality and romance the way we would normally think of it right celebration or power negotiation mm -hmm. into basically like time traveling the universe together and you're like oh wow so now we're just two little hominids with prefrontal cortexes connected to spinal columns connected to erogenous zones and yeah. we can put our bits together and we can create a super flying saucer to go experience the most profound experiences conceivable mm. let's do that mm. or at least let's pick one weekend a month and go try that like you can periodize it yeah right so you can have daily practices 15 minutes here and there you can have your weekly half day like reclaim the sabbath make it about your relationship once a month a full day once a quarter a weekend once mm -hmm. a year a week and you can create the experiences by which that polarity right mm -hmm. the magnetism comes back yeah you've just taken charge of it you understand how it works and instead of lamenting it and looking over your shoulder you're actually like oh we know how to literally make love yes not wait for it not be pissed it went away mm. we can actually construct it we can architect it yeah yeah and that's super empowering and you kind of think about it you're like that's true for all the religious traditions too. There's always like the mm -hmm. sanctity of marriage, the thing you're like, this is the holy thing. This is what we're supposed to do. Right. Right. You're like, yes. Yeah. Let's be good to each other and let's use the privilege of connecting and sharing each other's bodies. Cause obviously you can't do that with strangers or you probably shouldn't. It right. requires deep trust, vulnerability, intimacy, safety, yeah. all those things. So let's, let's prioritize that and let's help lessen the burden and help process and release our trauma as it comes in mm. and let's have something unique special and profound that we get to do together mm. that validates and valorizes mm. right this yeah. this union yeah now ryan i love it uh, next time that you get upset with me, does it mean I have to give you a hand job? <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be, but that, that, that's Chris Ryan's territory. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's this is, it, it's funny you say this has come up several times. Uh, very recently, we had. Uh, uh, Chris Kelly on the podcast. He runs a company called Nourish Balance Thrive. I'd love to connect you with him. He's uh, phenomenal, but he lives in a he has a communal living situation where it's he and his wife and their two kids, a third kid on the way. They commune with other families, and they're non they're monogamish or non monogamous on there. But he seems very traditional to me in, in any in every other sense. But he also understands sort of the everything that you just laid out on the table here mm -hmm. it makes a lot of sense because what happens is there is that arc and then you know attraction fades and and mm -hmm. and and that really fucks with your compatibility and everything else that's going on between the two of you uh in my own situation with with my wife we spend about 50 percent of our time apart and there's a weird sort of dynamic there because mm -hmm. she'll be gone for a week or i'll be gone for a week and the coming back together mm -hmm. it it, it creates that 
that newness, that attraction, that I know that if we were together for a prolonged period of time for months or years mm -hmm. without ever having time apart, um, then it's almost creating that novelty that you were talking about mm -hmm. earlier mm -hmm. in a way. And um, you know, I've never heard anyone approach it exactly how you did, and I think it's worth going back and listening to, yeah. to that segment. I was just thinking that, actually. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me ask you this before we wrap up, Jamie. What, what do you hope happens? What do you hope with this book? What, what are your hopes? Mm -hmm. Uh, because y you've you've written a book, it's a it's a weighty project for you to put together. It, this could have been several books. In fact, we didn't even get a, a chance to talk about it's it's broken into three sections, right? Choose your own apocalypse, the alchemist cookbook, ethical cult building, mm -hmm. and, and so um, those could have been three books on their own, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you've put them together in one uh, in one book here, so that um, well, what what are your hopes with it? Mm -hmm. Where where do we go from here? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, that choose your own apocalypse is just kind of where are we, what's going on, and how do we make better decisions for ourselves? Mm -hmm. The alchemist cookbook was how to blow yourself sky high with household materials, right? <laughs> the respiration, movement, embodiment, sacrament, you know, uh, substances, and music, and sexuality, right? So how do we take responsibility for our own healing and peak experiences? Yes. And the ethical cult building was how do we make use of these powerful tools Mm. while right while maintaining sovereignty agency dignity for everybody versus just going off following untrustworthy leaders mm. right so, axiom thing yeah so my biggest hope for this book and the way it's intended is this is an open source operating system mm -hmm. for transformational consciousness and culture and the intention is not to say this is the way this is to say like linux you know like a, like a software that's freely available to everybody. Yeah. Like, here's how it works yeah. based on neuroanthropology. This, this stuff shoots straight if you use it. Now, adapt it, don't adopt it. So take what's useful, innovate, build, you know, like create in, you know, new variations. If what you come up with mm -hmm. catches, if it works, then other people will want to borrow it and make use of what you've discovered. And, and so, iterate on that. And iterate. And so you get all these branching networks yeah. of, of human-centered design and civilization design. So my hope would be that folks find the toolkit useful. They find the guidelines that, that they make sense and they add additional clarity for their lives and that mm -hmm. they help inform what we build from here because we are in a world of hurt. There is a metasystemic crisis mm -hmm. and we need to unleash the maximum human spirit innovation, care, compassion, and creativity possible. So let a thousand fires burn. Yes. And in the coming storms, 900 of them may get snuffed out by the wind and the rain, mm. right? But a hundred won't. And we won't know which ones they are until we all get creating. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, I would say in, in the, you know, the end of one of those guidelines is, is the maxim, just stay awake, build stuff, mm. help out. I love it. I love how uh, you alluded to it in the minimal episode about how you're with this book, you're kind of helping people find this foundation of where to start their journey, so to speak. Um, it, it reminds me, it may, makes me think of why personally I have dived into minimalism or simplicity the way I have. I mean, minimalism is just another ism. Mm -hmm. uh, Theminimalists.com was available for $8 when we decided to, <laughs> nice. to to talk about this. So, you know, minimalism six, but really I look at it as a, as a life of simplicity, a philosophy around simplicity, because this is my baseline from which 
I can kind of grow from. So I, I love the analogy you, you, you kind of gave because it makes me think of your book being a foundation, a strong foundation for people to build their lives off of. And finding meaning. I mean, that's yeah. ultimately what we're talking about here. But it's actionable but not prescriptive. Yes. And, yeah. and there's something really beautiful about that because there's something easy about prescriptions, but then they, they stop working when they stop working and they almost always stop working. In fact, the prescription becomes the problem. Yeah, we see that in medicine, all the, 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 the psychoactive drugs you, d- you talked about earlier, like it, we're, we're prescribing more problems is really what we're doing mm-hmm. uh, by masking the symptoms. This is addressing yeah. a deeper understanding, getting, getting beneath the, the everyday solutions. It feels yeah. like, and, uh, creating something more meaningful. I want to acknowledge you for that. Absolutely. Yeah. Great work, man. Where, can, where yeah. can people find you online? Well, uh, if you're interested in the book and learning more and the toolkits and, and models and everything else, uh, recapturetherapture.com and then also the organization that I founded, um, which is based on the kind of the training of this kind of stuff for leaders, is the Flow Genome Project. And you can find us on Instagram, you can find us on Facebook, YouTube, Beautiful. Sean, let's put a link to those in the show notes as well. All right, y'all. Thank you so much for joining us today. Love people. Use things. We'll see you next time. (laughs) Thank you, patrons. The Minimalists.